Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're bringing you listener mail today. Now, of course, we've got our trusty mailbot, Carney, here. Carney, of course, used to be Arnie. Then he was subjected to Cartesian doubt, became Carney, and then he was subjected to an infestation of skugs, and now he's just full of squirrels, has been for months. <laughs> uh, it's an ongoing problem. But I've noticed some of these squirrels infesting Carney. While they used to be more of a, of a nuisance crawling throughout his gears and pulling out <laughs> wires and stuff, now I think they have taken... Taken on a uh, a kind of a, a, a sacred or holy aura. I'm not sure what's changed about them. Oh well, you know, I feel like our episodes on squirrels kind of had this effect on a lot of people. Mm-hmm. They transformed the the lowly squirrel, the profane squirrel, into something of a sacred squirrel. I feel uh, like that was that was my experience. The sacred cannibal, yeah, yeah. Because I before king, king of rats, <laughs> the king of the rats. Yeah, get it on a shirt at our uh, our, our, our our t-shirt store, but. Um, yeah, before I, I liked squirrels okay, I guess. You know, I watched them, but I would also, like, chase them away from the bird feeder and all. But after <laughs> our episodes, I, like, I really began to respect squirrels so much more. I would – I stopped chasing them. I now feed them every day. I feed them mealworms, uh, sort of an offering to them. Uh-huh. And I just love watching them scamper around and, and eat their mealworms and drink from the bird feeder. I'm just – I'm all in on squirrels. You say that until they turn on you. Well, as long as I keep the mealworms coming, <laughs> uh, I think I'm okay. But uh, before we get into the, the the proper listener mail, I do want to address the squirrels on Carney, and I, I want to share with everybody uh, a sacred tradition of the squirrel that um, I neglected to mention in previous episodes. And uh, it concerns the Indian palm squirrel, or three-striped palm, palm squirrel, of South India and Sri Lanka. Hmm. This is... Uh, uh, Phanambulus uh, palmarum. And in Hindu traditions, the palm squirrel is associated with Rama. Ah. Now, Rama, uh, some of you may already be familiar, is the, the seventh avatar of Vishnu and the title character of the epic Ramayana. And in this story of the Ramayana, uh, uh, Rama's wife Sita is kidnapped by the demon king Ravana and taken to the island of Lanka. So he, what he does, he wants to get Sita back, so he assembles his forces and his allies in order to defeat Ravana and bring her home, which of course means traveling to Lanka, which is modern-day Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he has to march uh, the Vanara ape army across this, this vast body of water, so they need a bridge. So they build one in the form of the Rama Setu. Okay. So the cool thing about the Rama Setu is that uh, it actually exists in the form of a, a chain of limestone shoals spread between the Indian subcontinent and Sri Lanka, uh, also known as Adams Bridge. Uh, but it's, uh, it's thought to have once been a geological land bridge. Ah, so perhaps maybe if sea levels were lower or something, uh, it could be revealed, or if the limestone was just higher for some reason. Yeah, I'd love to come back and, and do an episode on land bridges because obviously um, they they play an important role in uh, the movements of species, including Homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. But in this myth, it involves the movement of an ape army. By the way, I I mentioned it's also known as Adam's Bridge. And I imagine a lot of you might think, well, that's probably coming from Western interpretations, right? Uh, But it's actually— like Adam from the first man of Genesis. And that is who it's referring to. But um, according to what I was looking at, it's actually linked to Islamic traditions. Oh. And uh, more importantly, linked to the Sri Lankan mountain Adam's Peak which is a sacred mountain in Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, and Islam. And it's said to be the, the footprint of either Shiva, uh, the, the Hindu god, or uh, Adam or St. Thomas in uh, Christian and uh, in, in Islamic traditions. Hmm. Anyway, uh, according to Hindu traditions, though, uh, this land bridge, this bridge was constructed in order to march the ape army to Lanka. And uh, most of most of the work is being done by the Venara, the apes. They're they're carrying all these heavy stones, dumping them into the ocean, and building this great bridge to march the army across. Uh-huh. But then there's one small squirrel that tries to help as well. And so there are a few different versions I ran across here of, of you know regarding how the squirrel's trying to help. 
There's one where the squirrel's just rolling around in the sand and then marching out to the uh, you know the, the farthest extent of the 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 bridge under construction and then shakes off the sand into the water. Oh, uh, another one is that it just kind of fills its mouth with pebbles and then marches <laughs> out there and drops the pebbles off the edge. This is a good story. Yeah. So the so the squirrel is is devoted. The squirrel is really trying to help. But the apes are doing most of the work. Right. And uh, in, in one version, the apes just get, eventually they, they're tired of the squirrel being underfoot. And uh, they're like, look, we're, we're doing it. We're dropping boulders in here. You're, you're dropping pebbles. And so they hurl the squirrel out of the way. And then the squirrel lands right in Rama's lap. And Rama is uh, is impressed by the the creature's devotion. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's not so much about how much work the squirrel is getting done, but just how how um, how eager uh, the squirrel is to help, how devoted the squirrel is. And so Rama rewards the squirrel. He takes three fingers and he runs them down the squirrel's back. Uh, and remember, this species is the the three striped palm squirrel. It has ah. three stripes down its back. So this is a classic etiological myth, right? You've yeah. got you've got an a fact you observe about the world, how did it get that way? And this story explains how. Exactly. The fact, of course, here is the three stripes. Yeah. So it is the mark of a god on this squirrel's back. And uh, and so the, the idea is that it is a sacred creature. It's to be protected. You're not supposed to harm uh, the, the squirrel. And, uh, you know, it's typically fed by families then in devotion to Rama. So I just thought that was a fun little uh, tale to share with everybody uh, and an example of, of a sacred squirrel. So the next time you're you're, uh, uh, you know, entertaining profane thoughts about the squirrel, uh, perhaps uh, entertain a, a sacred interpretation of these scurrying little beasts. Absolutely. Blessed by the caress of Rama, I will never look at our mailbots infestation the same way. <laughs> it's, it's all good stuff. All right. But then on that note, we should probably start turn into some listener mail here. Uh, and, and it's actually uh, ideal that we, we have already mentioned in this episode a sacred mountain because we heard from a lot of our listeners about sacred mountains and, uh, and holy mountains, holy peaks, and the entities that might be, in, uh, might be encountered there. Well, then in that spirit, maybe we should go straight to a few of the emails we got about Sacred Mountains. Of course, we did a two-part episode on Sacred Mountain, Traditions of the World, uh, some links, uh, some, some mountaintop psychology, some, uh, some high-altitude, low-pressure uh, uh, physiology and neuroscience, and just, of course, many great myths about the mountains of the gods. And we asked for uh, the experiences people out there have had with Sacred Mountains. So uh, do you want to do this one from Cody first? Yeah, let's hear from Cody. Okay, so Cody says, Perfect timing of the episode as I listen to these episodes literally driving down from my climb up and ski down of Mount Shasta. Ah. I have spent decades hiking, rock climbing, and skiing in the Sierra Nevada and Klamath Mountains. Yosemite and Shasta to me are particularly spiritual places. Even though I'm not a religious or spiritual person, both having immense senses of scale and isolation. Muir's religion of the mountains is probably the closest thing to religion for me. Regarding feeling or seeing other beings out in high elevation wilderness, I haven't had any experiences at the level of the ones you talked about on Everest. But in regards to thinking you're seeing things that aren't there or mistaking shapes, that can very easily happen. In my recent Shasta climb, multiple times I mistook the silhouette created by the snow and rock interacting as someone pausing above me. The mixture of physical exertion and lack of oxygen from elevation on the brain is not something to be taken lightly. Then add in the parallax trickery of huge mountainous environments. Even at sea level, physical exertion will wreck cognition and just about all elite athletes will do training to combat this, such as wind sprints then doing math problems. And that's all before you add in any sort of less than perfect weather. Being involved with the climbing and mountaineering community, though, I feel like you don't hear as much about the IHAP condition you guys coined. And I think – what did that stand – I think it was something like isolated high-altitude psychosis. Uh, yeah, uh, or international house of <laughs> altitude psychosis. <laughs> um uh, he continues, certainly plenty of spiritual or larger-than-life feelings, even a few that mimic microdosing psychoactive drugs. That's interesting. Maybe those do count, but it was a shame a lot of those studies had pitiful sample sizes, considering even just the number of people uh, professionally guided on Everest. Uh, eight people, the study shouldn't have gotten published, in my opinion. Well, the, st the study we looked at in the episode did a sort of literature review where they looked back at all the pre-existing studies they could find uh, about 
uh, asking mountain climbers whether they'd had any kind of experiences right. like this. So, yeah, some of the studies had small sample sizes, but they looked at multiple studies. Anyway, back to Cody. So Cody says, uh, glad to hear you mentioned Meru. I work for the North Face and have gotten to spend time with Conrad Anker talking to him about his experiences climbing Meru and his many, many, many other experiences in the mountains. It's particularly interesting to hear about the intersection of the beliefs and traditions of those who live in the Himalayas and those who go to climb in those mountains. Meru in particular was something Conrad and team handled carefully since it was literally the center of the universe for a lot of people. On a closer-to-home example of the spiritual rituals butting up against the climbing is the closing of Devil's Tower every June for Native American ceremonies. Also, many other sandstone towers in the Southwest, I guess he means the American Southwest, uh, are permanently closed due to their spiritual significance to Native peoples. In terms of evil mountains, and this was a question we asked, are, are there any like hell mountains or right. devil mountains? We couldn't find examples, but surely there are. Uh, Cody continues, in terms of evil mountains, I was also hard-pressed to think of one. There are certainly peaks that carry a uh, stigma or curse by how many percent of climbers have perished, such as K2, or how many parties have been rebuffed, Miru, for a while. Uh, but I couldn't think of a spiritually evil mountain. Side note, when you guys were talking about that British Everest climber not using oxygen versus today, the use of supplemental O2 is certainly widely used in this day, day and age of high-altitude mountaineering. But in this day and age of mountaineering where the style of how you do something can be almost as important as the climb itself, i.e. the use of O2 does diminish the level of accomplishment since it makes it easier. So the best of the best in high-altitude mountaineering still do not use O2. Love the wide variety of topics you guys cover. Well, thank you, Cody. Yeah, that was really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a feeling that, you know, given uh, our sort of broad listener base, so we had to have some mountain climbers out there. Mm -hmm. And I guess it makes sense that some of them may have just climbed a mountain and were just, you know, ready to, to, to chime in. I'm interested in uh, Cody's thing about there's it's sort of being a badge of honor that you can climb without O2. Of course, we're not like recommending people do that because obviously that increases the risks, of, you know, the dangers of what you're right. doing. And also, I'm I am not qualified to make any recommendations about mountain climbing. Well, no, I mean just generally, we're we're not saying like yeah, don't use O2. <laughs> but uh, if that is indeed a sort of like a, it, it makes the achievement more uh, in held in higher esteem by other mountaineers and. Uh, mountain climbing people. I wonder if part of that might be that if you climb without O2, you appear to be more likely to have these mildly altered states of consciousness, what Cody compares to being sort of like microdosing uh, certain psychogenic drugs mm. or more likely to cause these kind of uh, errors of perception that, that make the world feel a bit unreal. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, I mean, it's. I guess it's likely that. It's also probably just a little bit of like the uh, you know, sort of the heroics of the thing, right? Uh, that's yeah. obviously there. Yeah. I mean, I'm just wondering if it's this other thing too. Yeah, I could see that possibly being the case. All right, here's another one that comes in related to sacred mountains. This comes to us from James. James says, hello, Robert and Joe. I have been a longtime listener and believe this my first email in. Uh, I have recently been reading into the folklore of the Crow Nations and came across a story about the little people of the Pryor Mountains. Hmm. Being from Oklahoma, I thought they were referring to the Pryor here. Since, they are arguably, since there are arguably no true mountains in Oklahoma, uh, I learned that they were referring to one of the many mountain ranges in Montana where the Crow Nation is from. The little people were another race standing around knee height but contained, containing immense strength. They lived in the mountains and attacked those that entered the area. However, some were allowed to pass through if they left an offering of beads or tobacco. Uh, the other way to pass through was to shoot an arrow ahead of you as you passed. The little people also sometimes met with those that went to the mountain to fast. One tale I found was uh, of Chief Plenty Coos meeting them when he was nine. In the Choctaw Nation's creation story, uh, it says that the Chickasaw and Choctaw Nations came from a great mound. While not a sacred mountain, the story seems to fit with this as well. Sorry for the long email. I only uh, read about these stories recently, and when your episode came out, it made me think of the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you for the hours uh, and hours and hours of informative entertainment. Best regards, James. This is something I think maybe we, uh, we could have explored more in the episode but didn't come up as much – which is the idea of like myths and religious stories that have mountains as the dwelling place 
not just of the gods, but of like other types of peoples or other yeah. beings. You know, the mountains being a place of trolls, or the mountains being the place of like the little people. Yeah, this is this is it would be an interesting avenue to explore more in the future. I mean, I, I instantly think too of uh, of goblins and uh, uh-huh. creatures of that nature as well. All right, we have another one here. This one comes to us from Haim. Haim writes in and says, Hey, guys, uh, I was really surprised to not hear you touch on Mount Sinai in the Sacred Mountains episode. Hmm. I mean, actual or mythical locations that are associated with myths that have wide cultural relevance and staying power, the first thing I think of is Mount Sinai. I'll admit I'm biased in that respect because I'm a former Orthodox Jew, but I understand that it has similar or equal relevance in Christianity and Islam as well. Maybe you didn't touch on it uh, on purpose because it would uh, be too socially or politically controversial to address Abrahamic religions as mythologies that share so many similar themes to lots of ancient belief systems. Uh, That's actually what I uh, opened up the podcast hoping to hear the main content be. Regardless, I really enjoyed the episode and your show in general. Uh, yeah, Mount Sinai is a, a great one. Of course, that is, uh, for example, in the book of Exodus, that is where it is said that uh, Moses receives the Ten Commandments on top of Mount Sinai from mm-hmm. from God. Um, uh, there was no reason we didn't mention it, I think. I think it just didn't come up. Yeah, I, we we just kind of forgot to <laughs> include it, uh, which is sometimes uh, I mean, the case. There, there are a whole lot of holy mountains. So, yeah, yeah. but it is true. This is a, this is a huge one of, of big cultural significance, yeah. yeah. And I do think, like, the story of uh, Moses's ascent into Mount Sinai where he, you know, he receives the Ten Commandments and like there is something interesting going on there with like he, he disappears into the mountain and then what happens to the people while he's gone? Well, they turn to idol worship immediately while while he has disappeared because mm-hmm. they're waiting for him to come down. Something interesting is going on there. I haven't quite thought about how to phrase it, but yeah. Absolutely. And, uh, and I do want to also just remind everybody, like when we talk about myth and religion on the show, um, I, I do hope everyone understands that we, you know, we, we try to discuss mythology and myth is being um, is having more weight than simply saying like this is a story made up by people you know like uh, oh um, yeah we're we're not using myth as a pejorative word right. the way some people sometimes do like some people use the word myth to mean like a thing that is a lie right. or something like yeah, that yeah it's it's not like mythbusters right no, no 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 we're using it in the sense of like a traditional or foundational story often involving supernatural elements right but what a different show Mythbusters would have been if that was the the cell. Like we're going to go after another myth. This 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 a week. It's Prometheus. The story's BS. <laughs> and then they bust it somehow. I don't know. No, we get some internet commenters that are like that. Like every time we put something up about some interesting mythological topic, somebody chimes in in the comments. It's like fake BS made up. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> it's like I, I think you're missing the point a little bit. Yeah. Well, that that tends to happen on like uh, you know, some of our social media accounts where you maybe have people come in that don't really know the show and they uh-huh. just see something where, where like a myth is referenced in the, the title or the description and then they, they kind of react. Yeah. You know, if you are that person and you're uh, you're uh, you're listening, no hard feelings, but but maybe maybe think about don't do that. Well, I mean, certainly we always invite everyone to to actually listen to the episodes and respond yeah. to the content of the episodes, and and along those lines, I mean, it, we we do uh, we do make mistakes uh, here and there, and that's why we'd love to to hear from everybody. We we skip over things by accident, like Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, we're uh, we're we're on a, con- a, a continuous uh, journey of uh, discovery and self improvement here, and and we hope everybody else is engaging with the world uh, with that kind of uh, growth mindset as well. Well, one last thing I'll say as someone who creates nonfiction content, I will say not all omissions are intentional omissions. So, mm-hmm. like, th- there's literally no way we can talk about all the sacred mountains in the world in our right. episode that was, you know, a total of however many minutes. So, uh, so I don't know. Always keep that in mind. It's just like sometimes you just pick the things that you pick to talk about because they were interesting and and they're what came up. It's not because you thought everything else should be left out. Right. And then that's what listener mail episodes are ultimately for too. You know, yeah. we, we hoped and expected to hear from folks with examples of really cool traditions that we, uh, you know, forgot to cover or just were not aware of. I'd like mm-hmm. to go back to uh, Adam's Peak that I mentioned uh, at the top of this episode. Uh, I was not familiar with that Sri Lankan um, holy mountain uh, mm-hmm. until looking at following the, the, the trail of the squirrel. So, uh, yeah, uh, like I say, we're continually learning new things and trying to uh, share them with everybody. In that spirit of open-mindedness, may we now bludgeon you with an advertisement. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. But we, but we will be right back. 
All right, we're back. And, uh, you know, I believe we have some listener mail related to another recent episode, uh, our episode about the imp of the perverse. Right. This is the impulse to do wrong simply for the reason that it's wrong and no other reason at all. Uh, So this comes to us from our listener, Miriam. Miriam says, hi, Joe and Robert. Thank you for the great episode, The Imp of the Perverse. It was very interesting to consider all the various ways this phenomenon can affect our lives. When you talked about intrusive thoughts and the techniques that have been shown to help some people overcome them, I was struck by how closely it mirrored my own experience with a form of OCD called Pure O. It differs from traditional OCD, and of course that's uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. It differs from traditional OCD in that the compulsion triggered by the intrusive thought is not a physical behavior such as hand washing, but the mental checking of the thought and of the body's visceral responses to it. When you talked about checking on intrusive thoughts and how it leads to a positive feedback loop, I was surprised by how closely you described this disorder without naming it. I believe that the pure O variant of OCD is lesser known and highly insidious, as people can suffer tremendously for a long time without having any visible symptoms that might more easily prompt them or their loved ones to consider seeking professional help. I think better awareness of this disorder could help people understand that the techniques you described, which were exactly what I did in therapy alongside CBT, uh, really can provide huge relief from intrusive thoughts if they begin to take over your life. It's been more than a year since I've been bothered by intrusive thoughts. I believe it's because I was able to forge an entirely different, healthier relationship to my thoughts thanks to practicing CBT and other techniques with my therapist. So I just wanted to emphasize how important these concepts are for everybody and to say thanks again for talking about them. Cheers, Miriam. Excellent. Well, thanks for sharing that with us, uh, Miriam. Uh, uh, by the way, that's uh, cognitive behavioral therapy for anybody. Oh, CBT. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, um, yeah, yeah. And so I actually hadn't really heard of this pure O form of OCD before, but this mm-hmm. is kind of interesting. So, you know, the traditional idea of OCD is that, you know, you have repetitive compulsive behaviors uh, th- that are triggered by sort of loops in your mind. You might lock the door a bunch of times or you might wash your hands a lot or yeah. – uh, you Click know. your um, – you, the clicker on your car exactly 15 times. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, but th- this is the idea that you could have the same kind of mental impulses uh, that, that cause you to have sort of like repetitive anxieties and, and, and revisit these thoughts over and over without having external behaviors that follow from them and that this could allow the behavior to, to just kind of like go on and fester without people noticing that you're having a problem. Right. Well, uh, I'm also really glad to hear that, uh, that, that CBT and, and uh, therapy has worked out for you, Miriam. Absolutely. All right, here's another one. This one is coming to us from Eric. Uh, Eric writes in and says, Dear mind-blowing folk, thanks for the great show. I started listening last year and went back to the archives all the way back to science stuff with Allison and Robert, and now I'm up to uh, mid-2016s. Wow. Uh, I mean, everybody listens to the show differently. I tend to advise against starting (laughs) with the beginning and working your way up. I don't know. I I often feel like a lot of the topics we we cover – the older episodes, you'd run into potential problems of the science not being like completely up to date. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, you know, we're always we're perpetually, uh, hopefully, growing and becoming better at this whole podcasting thing. Mm-hmm. So I also worrying uh, worry about like how um, uh, how I come off in, in past episodes, you know. <laughs> um, because uh, I feel like some of those early ones were kind of rough. It was like a 15-minute show back then. I'm sure you were <laughs> great, Robert. <laughs> but anyway, I, I appreciate anybody who enjoys the show enough that they're going back into the back catalog. Uh, anyway, um, Eric continues. In the episode Jupiter's Children, you asked offhandedly whether Ganymede's icy surface would be slippery. Hmm. The answer, in short, is probably not. Oh. Ice on Earth is slippery because when we set foot or skate on it, the pressure, friction, and high temperature of our shoes or skates melts a tiny amount of ice, forming a thin layer of water that acts as a lubricant between you and the ice. On Ganymede or Europa, however, the ice would be so cold and your spacesuit's boots would necessarily have to be so heavily insulated that it would not melt and would be about equivalent to walking on low-density rock or sand. Also, the gravity is so low that you wouldn't create very much friction or pressure. Hmm. You mentioned uh, John Scalzi's The Forever War. 
Uh, he actually got the science wrong on this. In his novel, the recruits are training on Pluto, and he incorrectly describes the surface as covered in frozen hydrogen. In the book, the outsides of their suits were warm enough, uh, above roughly 20 degrees Kelvin, uh, to cause the frozen hydrogen to boil, which made it very slippery. In reality, the surface of Pluto is minimum 33 degrees Kelvin, uh, which is far too warm for either frozen or liquid hydrogen, although still ridiculously cold, enough to seasonally have nitrogen snow. Nitrogen snow. Nice. I hope this answer is not redundant, as I am writing about three years after the episode in question aired. All the best wishes and keep up the good work. Eric. No, this is great feedback. Yeah. I, I'm glad to know that I wouldn't fall on my butt on Ganymede. <laughs> I do remember that being a real fun uh, part of the Forever War. Uh, it was a, it was a fun novel to read. Um, and it kind of makes me want to revisit some of these old like space soldier, uh, you know, uh, power armor novels that I was really into for a while. Uh, speaking of those, you know, I was just the other day thinking about uh, thinking about Starship Troopers because oh, I've, yeah. I've never read the Heinlein novel, but I recently rewatched the movie. Paul Verhoeven's Starship Troopers, you know, I saw some of our fans talking about it on the discussion module and they were like, yeah, it's kind of bad, kind of good. Disagree. I think it, it is a masterpiece. <laughs> it is one of the best satires in American film history. It would, I would be interested uh, to, re, to, to review it and uh, discuss it because I saw it uh, when it first came out mm -hmm. and I remember disliking it, mm -hmm. but I have a feeling that a lot of my dislike was me kind of uh, you know, basically buying into the, the story too much. Like yeah. expecting it to be a humans are good, bugs are bad kind of story. And, and something felt kind of icky about yeah, it. It did. It felt it so felt it, icky. And uh, so the, it was sort of working, but yeah, it was working. But at the time, I thought, well, this this movie's broken. I feel icky after watching this uh -huh. this film. Uh, but no, I, I think it's it's like a genius satire. It's essentially, I think, it is a propaganda film made by a future fascist society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I, I would need to reread the book because I'm. I'm a little hazy on all the details. Like the main thing I'm remembering uh, uh, is the bazookas. So I'm, uh, there's the power well, armor. Well, oh, I mentioned it because I thought there was power there armor. There is power armor oh, yeah, in, okay, the, in yeah. the novels, but not in the movies, in the movie as I, as I remember. Mm -hmm. There's no power armor in the movie, right? No, that's right. Yeah, yeah okay. they cut that part out. Yeah, because it's, it's straight up space marines uh, yeah. in, the, in the novel. Right. Straight up Casper Van Dien. It's all body <laughs> with him. <laughs> Okay, uh, let's take a look at the next one. Uh, how about this one from our recurring correspondent, Jesser, who's into Egyptian mythology? Ooh, yes, let's hear. Okay, so Jesser says, uh, Hi, I wanted to write in to share a couple of things uh, related to your recent episodes on narratives. That was the one uh, against narratives about the possible you know, negative consequences of our addiction to stories. And also uh, about sacred mountains. So Jesser writes, in the episode, you happened to use a definition of story based on conflict. It reminded me of an essay I'd read called The Significance of Plot Without Conflict. It argues that the idea that story needs conflict is a limited view of story structure prevalent in Western culture. To demonstrate its point, it discusses a Japanese story structure called Kishotenketsu. Uh, this structure is made up of four acts, introduction, development, twist, and resolution, where the twist acts like a non sequitur and the resolution brings the introduction and the twist into harmony with each other. The example they use is a four-panel comic. A girl standing at a vending machine. She buys a soda. A boy is sitting on a bench. The girl appears and gives him a soda. Hmm. The essay goes on to suggest that the focus on stories as conflict in the Western perspective leads people to frame things as conflicts even when there is none. On my initial read, I was skeptical since you could argue in Kishotenketsu uh, that it still uses conflict just in the form of conflicting images instead of a literal conflict. But if the narratives we make affect the way we see the world, maybe by thinking that conflict is necessary to narrative, we make ourselves more prone to see ourselves in conflict with others. Interesting. You know, this makes me think of um, the Miyazaki film, My Neighbor Totoro. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know to what extent this lines up with that, but like Totoro is a film that when I w watched it before becoming a parent, I found it kind of kind of boring and, and, and long, you know, beautiful, but also just kind of drawn out and mm -hmm. devoid of, of much in the way of conflict. 
but I've kind of seen it through my son's eyes, and now I, I, I love it. Uh, you know, I put it right up there with, with Nausicaa. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is my favorite Miyazaki film. Nausicaa, of course, is a film that has lots of conflict. Yeah. But Totoro, I mean, there's there is the the, the plot element about uh, the, the younger uh, the younger child uh, running away, and there being some concern over if she's okay and having mm-hmm. to find her, and then there's concerns over the mother's uh, illness and her recovering from it. So I don't know if it's completely devoid of of conflict, depending on how you want to. Oh, no, I'd say that's definitely not without conflict because, I mean, when you think about the role that conflict plays in narrative, at least the way I would see it, this is what I think I said in the previous episode, Mm -hmm. is that what it is is that a character that you come to identify with emotionally faces some kind of obstacle or problem that they have to overcome. Right. And so this is some kind of conflict. It could be an actual fight, you know, a conflict like a violent conflict, but it doesn't need to be. It could just be that there's something they want to know and they don't know it yet, so they need to find out. Or, right. or it could be that they maybe, uh, you know, there are all these relationship stories. They they are in love with somebody or they want to be friends with somebody or something like that, and it's not working out at first. So conflict doesn't, to me, imply necessarily like violence or, or right. anything like that. But it's but it does kind of feel like there's sort of conflict with a capital C, yeah. especially in Western traditions where it's got to be like that Disney movie conflict where somebody dies – or is or it's you know it's 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 mythic in the sense that somebody's kidnapped by say a ten-headed demon king. Right. But if the if the if the conflict is is more of you know subtle, mm-hmm. if it's like uh, you know May's feelings about her mother and Totoro, uh, that sort of thing. Like it's it, it seems like a slightly different animal. I mean, likewise to go back to this example of. Uh, of uh, the the girl standing by a vending machine buying a soda, a boy sitting on a, on a bench, and then the girl appears to give him a soda, mm-hmm. like. Arguably, to their point, you know, th- this could be seen as conflict. Like she, uh, she perhaps says, "Oh, there's somebody without a soda. I should share." Yeah, and that that in and of itself it's is like a, a problem a conf- to resolve. Yeah, a problem yeah. that needs to be resolved. Some sort of growth that needs to take place mm-hmm. within that character. Uh, yeah, I'm 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 totally open to the idea that there are are other forms of narratives. I mean, uh, I, I still do when I look at stuff like this. It does seem to me like there is there is like empathy with characters and a desire to resolve some kind of obstacle. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when I think about this this four panel comic, I start imagining things like that. So maybe that's just me projecting on. But I yeah. start to imagine. Um, a, a, a subtextual conflict where the boy sitting alone on the bench was lonely and now this girl appears and gives him a soda and now there's a friendship, which is a kind of resolution of a psychic uh, conflict. Right. Or if you just really – you could, the thing about narrative, though, you can just really go hog wild with it, right? Mm-hmm. You can say she's a vampire. She never <laughs> intended to drink that soda. She bought that soda in order to gain the boy's trust mm-hmm. so that she might drain his vital essence. But I'm obviously reading way too much into it. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, obviously, we want to read conflicts into it. Uh, but this is a really good point. Maybe thinking of narrative in terms of conflict is somehow limiting or, or uh, I don't know. You've definitely given me something to think about. Uh, so thank you, Jesser. But the email is not over. As usual, Jesser has something to say about Egyptian mythology. So uh, uh, the, our listener continues here. You also made passing reference to cyclical and linear time. And I can't pass up an opportunity to share a fact about ancient Egypt. Robert, I know you love cyclical and linear time, so strap in here. The Egyptian language has two terms for eternity, depending on whether you were talking about eternity in cyclical, nene, or linear, diet, time. In The Search for God in Ancient Egypt, Jan Osman described the dual eternities. Quote, it is often said of Nene time that it comes. It is time as an incessantly pulsating stream of days, months, seasons, and years. Diet time, however, remains, lasts, and endures. And then Jesser says, for bonus points, Nene could be an idiophone for repetition. <laughs> that's oh, that's an interesting good, yeah. thought, yeah. In your episode about sacred mountains, you mentioned the myth of King Lycaon feeding human flesh to Zeus and the evidence that suggests there was once human sacrifice to Zeus on Mount Lycaon. Maybe the myth was a bit of PR work on the part of the priests of Zeus Lycaos, explaining why Zeus used to take human sacrifices, but reassuring us that it was a mistake. Uh, Not a bad theory. 
Yeah. Uh, in fact, I've read about theories like this before, not things that are known for sure, but like the idea that uh, religions that have animal sacrifices often they, – they be over time, they came in as a sort of substitute for a previous practice of human sacrifice. And there's often a myth saying like uh, why the god does not accept human sacrifices anymore. It's like the, the priests are like working overtime to say like that's not the deal anymore. Right. I mean, it's almost perfectly there. Again, not knowing that this is the correct explanation, but it's a very interesting way of interpreting, like, the binding of Isaac. Yeah, again, as we've we've discussed in the show before, it's important to, to realize that that uh, religions and mythological traditions evolve. They're oh, not, yeah. They are not set in stone. Yeah. Uh, okay, one last thing from Jesser here. Jesser says, Also, the book Banner in the Sky, written in the 1950s by the mountaineer James Ramsey Ullman, features third man syndrome as a plot point. While climbing the mountain alone, the young protagonist Rudy feels as though he's being followed by some sort of demon or spirit. But as he overcomes his initial fear, he comes to think of it as if it's his father's ghost guiding him. I always thought it was just symbolic, but maybe it was inspired by actual experience. Thanks for all the work you put into making the podcast so consistently interesting and insightful, your pseudonymous Egyptologist, Jesser. Well, thank you so much. As usual, great email. Awesome, yeah. Yeah, and got to touch on several different uh, episodes that we've covered recently in that one. All right, well, on that note, we're going to take one more break. But when we come back, we have even more listener mail to share with you. All right, we're back. This one comes to us about our Send a Raven episode, or Send an Owl, Send a Pigeon, uh, and it is from our listener, Anna. Anna says, Hi, Robert and Joe. I love your podcast, and I'm listening to your other podcast, Invention, and enjoying that too. See, Anna's enjoying it. If you're not listening yet, you should get on that. Go over there, subscribe to Invention. Absolutely. Uh, so Anna says, I've gotten a little behind on my podcast. I just listened to your episode about the use of birds as messengers. You're not that behind. That was just like yeah, last, like last week. week. Yeah. yeah. Um, I do not know about other birds used as a messenger, but I do remember a fact about other uses for ravens. Perhaps other fans have emailed you about this already. They had not, Anna. Anna says, ravens are part of Viking slash Norse mythology, but apparently Vikings also had a real-world use for ravens too. In this case, their short flying range that you spoke of in the episode uh, came to the advantage of the Vikings. When the Vikings were out on a long sea voyage, they would send out a raven, and if the raven came back, they knew they were far from land. If the raven did not come back, they knew the raven must have landed and they would soon find land. Maybe there is a link with the biblical story of the ark. Perhaps Noah sent out a raven raven to see if the flood was over. Remember, uh, in the in the story of Noah's Ark, before he sends out the doves, he sends out a raven, and then it just never says what happened with the raven. Right. And uh, I just wanted to add, yeah, this is actually a part of the le- – I don't know if this is historically factual or if it's just part of the legend, but either way, the story of the, the discovery of Iceland, or maybe not the discovery, like the first deliberate journey to Iceland uh, by a Viking sea voyager – it was that uh, ravens were used to locate Iceland from out in the sea. And it seems to me like that might probably work because the idea is, you know, like you have a crow's nest in a boat uh, to get up there and see farther to see if you can find land. If you allow a bird to fly up, it can go way up in the sky and, and look around for land. And if it sees something, then you're in luck. Sort of like extending your crow's nest like hundreds of feet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, Anna continues. Another random fact I learned recently is that uh, recent research shows that all birds originally evolved from Australia. Now, I think, uh, Anna, I think this is actually a typo here. I think she meant to say all songbirds originated from Australia because I looked this up. I couldn't find evidence about all birds, but all songbirds did evolve from a common ancestor in Australia. And uh, songbirds, of course, are a huge subset of all birds comprising the clade Passeri, and their line did originally come from Australia about 24 million years ago. Uh, So I think that's what she meant. She continues, I learned this on a podcast by Dr. Carl Kruzelnicki. Kruzelnicki. Uh, Here in Australia, we just call him Dr. Carl. (laughs) It sounds kind of sketchy, but I looked him up and he looks legit. I I like Dr. Carl. Uh, She says, he has a few podcasts. He's written something like 50 books and he's been declared a national treasure of Australia. He's even won an Ig Nobel Prize. Oh, there you go. Uh, I enjoy your scientific approach and open-minded skepticism, and I think Dr. Carl has some of the same approach. Keep up the good work, Anna. Uh, So I wasn't familiar with Dr. Carl, but I read a bit on him. He sounds interesting, and apparently he's affected by prosopagnosia, which we've talked about 
about uh, face blindness. Yeah, on the show before. And he's got like strategies for how to identify people. Interesting. Uh, I should uh, mention, as long as we're talking about that Cinder Raven episode, uh, somebody on the the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module, which of course is our, our Facebook discussion group, which mm-hmm. is uh, really the, the the only place if you want to um, you know uh, interact with us on social media or, of course, interact with plenty of other listeners. Uh, but somebody brought up that uh, Frank Herbert's Dune features a, a plot element in which the Freeman – uh, the, the 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 sort of nomadic people of Arrakis uh, use bats to send messages, uh-huh. and I completely forgot this. I, yeah, I've, I've read Dune like multiple times, and and it is if you listen to the show, you know I I am usually not shy about throwing in a Dune reference, but I completely spaced on the bats. Totally makes sense on Arrakis; they can cross distances without the threat of worms, right? Yeah. If they can fly. Yeah, <laughs> but it, maybe we should come back and do an add-on to that episode and look at the bats. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know. Or any other messenger creatures bats, that come yeah. up, messenger bats. You know, could it be done? What? What? We just we should approach them as well, and sort of you know tack on a segment to that episode. Speaking of things that fly, we also got a, an, an email from a listener named Christian, not our former co-host Christian, uh, but a listener Christian about Cupid's lead arrows. That was a fun episode. Yeah, yeah, where we talked about uh, yeah, Cupid and this uh, like the the mythological use of lead, and then also mm-hmm. we, we just got into lead itself. Yeah. Uh, but uh, Christian writes in and says, "Hey guys, I'm listening to Cupid's lead and arrow, and heard one of you say that you wouldn't want a lead hammer. In fact." I have one. Ah, uh, what? I think that was me that said it. But, uh, I mean, it makes sense. Lead is kind of soft if you're beating something with lead for a long time. Right. It would probably deform the hammerhead. Well, we were talking about, yeah, the limits of using lead in in, in weaponry. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Christian continues. Quote, uh, British cars from the 60s frequently had wheels attached using a spinner, basically a large single lug nut at the center of the hub. A lead-faced hammer is used to remove the spinner by whacking the blades that protrude out from the center of the cab. Because the lead is soft, this doesn't damage the chrome finish of the spinner. Ah, okay. As always, keep up the good work, Christian. I stand corrected. Lead hammer is totally a thing. There you go. Not so much for whacking skulls, but when you need, <laughs> but when you need a subtle approach, uh, as, as clearly as the case uh, with the with these spinners. You know, I do want to say that I'm sure you could probably hurt somebody really bad with a lead hammer. It's not that like it wouldn't. I mean, it'd be heavy. You could still right. hurt somebody. It just probably wouldn't hold up over time. Right, and of course, you know, of course, the, the weaponry and the the history of uh, of, of military technology. It's mm-hmm. about usually about inflicting the most harm and then also having, uh, you know, some sort of durability to the weapons you've created. Right. Okay, a quick email from our listener Emily in response to the Bugs Under the Skin episode. Emily says, hey, I'm sure you've been sent this already, but just in case you haven't, regarding Bugs Under the Skin, check this out. She sends a link. It's a link to the story that you may have seen already (laughs) about the woman who had four bees living under her eyelid, eating her tears. Did did you come across this? this Yeah, this was everywhere. Right after our episode came out, it was everywhere. Uh, I found a write-up in The Atlantic by Haley Weiss, uh, just to read a quick quote from it. Bee stings hurt like hell, but there's reason to consider yourself lucky if a venomous prick is the worst you've suffered from bees. Last week, Taiwan's CTS News Channel reported that a 29-year-old woman had gone out for a walk in the mountains and returned home with eye pain that wouldn't go away. The next day, an ophthalmologist pulled four bees, all still alive, from under her right eyelid. So the story is they were living under her right eyelid and they'd been feeding on her tears. Uh, a little later in the article, quote, as Hong Chi Ting, who treated the woman at Fuyin University Hospital in Taiwan, explained at a press conference, these dark-colored bees were ant-sized members of the family known as Halictidae. Uh, colloquially, they're called sweat bees, named after one of their favorite foods. Oh, yes. And apparently these insects are attracted to our protein and sodium-rich body fluids, like sweat, but they like tears even more than sweat because tears are more nutrient-rich. Yeah, there's something almost mythological about this, right? Just uh-huh. the idea of like the, the bees feasting on her tears and living in her eyes. Um, like I think the first time I saw it uh, after our episode came out, I kind of dismissed it. I'm like, nope, that that can't be right. That just sounds too too perfect somehow. It's just too there's too much uh, um, you know, structural integrity to the idea. <laughs> it it couldn't ha- actually have happened, but. A, a, Seems like it happened. Uh, it's been covered enough. Yeah, it's one of those times where uh, reality feels like a story. Yeah. 
All right. We have a couple of uh, bits of listener mail that came in uh, about our, our episodes on FAE, uh, the fundamental attribution error. Uh, those were some, I think, some very uh, thought-provoking episodes and, yeah. uh, and fun. I think we really put the fun in fundamental attribution error. I think so, too. Now, uh, quick refresher, that's just uh, our sort of bias or tendency to um, over-ascribe things to people's fundamental internal qualities and under-ascribe behaviors to uh, people's unique situations and moment-to-moment. Right. Like a rough version would be like those those people who ate those other people in the mountains – uh, they they turn to cannibalism because they are cannibals, right? As opposed to saying they turned to cannibalism because they were in like a really harsh environmental condition and yeah. were uh, in a high stress survival situation. Yeah, and that's an extreme version, but well, and of course, all behaviors are explained by both you know internal qualities and external factors. But mm-hmm. we just tend to overemphasize internal qualities when we assess why things happen. Right. Certainly in the West. Yeah. So uh, our listener Justin wrote in, and first of all, Justin recommended that we do an episode on The Name of the Rose. I think that's an interesting idea. Oh, yeah. It's uh, uh, one of my favorite books. You've recently read it, it and uh, and I also really dig the movie. And there's a new uh, adaptation coming out with John Turturro as uh, Brother Williams. So. I can't wait to see that. But yeah, I, I loved this book. Also, I'll say it's one of the few mystery stories I've read where the ending solution to the mystery is actually truly satisfying. Usually, I feel like the end of a mystery is a letdown. Uh, not so with The Name of the Rose. But anyway, so yeah, I think that's a great idea. We, we, we may come back to that in the future. But then Justin wrote with it, oh, you know what? I put this in the wrong place in our outline. So we do have some emails about fundamental attribution error we'll get to in a minute. This one actually is in response to our narrative episodes. Oh, okay. yeah. uh, so FAE, uh, the explanation we just gave, put that on hold for yeah, a minute. Yeah, fun is on the way, but first a little more narrative. Okay. So Justin writes, thank you so much for your cast on storytelling. As a guy developing new drugs to treat bacterial infections, the notion of storytelling is heavily marketed for scientists and also for venture capitalists. Mm -hmm. Story is important, but selectively as a tactic. Unfortunately, what we've seen in in the industry is that fundraising dollars are flowing from venture capitalists to companies that have spent many years and tremendous effort on developing good stories rather than dedicate that heavily time-intensive effort on the science and understanding of disease biology of the drug they are trying to develop. The result of this behavior is that these quote-unquote overstoried biotech companies are largely with few exceptions, creating drugs that are marginal improvements on existing treatments. And because they soak up so much of the venture capital funding, they indirectly harm more innovative companies with novel solutions to significant and longstanding unaddressed problems in medicine. Tactically, I've made a time for my company to delay creating and marketing the story of our technology until the final animal study comes in to confirm as uh, as such without reasonable doubt. Thank you so much. I hope this was thought-provoking. Best, Justin. Well, that's interesting, Justin, uh, to hear from you in the industry. I think you're exactly right that, like, of course, stories are huge in marketing. And something I often recognize is, you know, it's not just going to be in biotechnology and, uh, and, and you know, developing new pharmaceuticals and all that. It's in all kinds of industries that I notice that uh, the, the free market often tends to invite people to focus as much or more on marketing a product as they do on coming up with a good product to begin with. Yeah. And the huge part of that marketing is trying to tell a story well. Yeah, I mean, certainly this is the case in advertising. I caught an ad just the other day for a medication. I think it was for um, – I forget, it was something to do with uh, digestion and bowels and mm-hmm. all. And it, it was like a couple and they were trying to decide whether to go this way or that way. Mm-hmm. But thanks to the medication, they were able to go across a giant rope bridge. <laughs> and, uh, it, I mean, it's – I have to admire it. It's like there's some subtle storytelling there that makes the whole advertisement more memorable and makes you place – the, the, the problem and the solution that they're marketing within the context of story. Well, ultimately, what a lot of these advertisers uh, are trying to do is not advertise the inherent superiority of the product they're selling. They're trying to get you to associate their brand name with a good feeling that you got from watching a story. Yeah. And also, I, I can't – this is kind of slightly unrelated, but – you know, it reminds me of another great or awful use of storytelling is uh, is in, uh, you know, scare tactics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, generally in, in the case of, uh, you know, propaganda about, uh, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, given, uh, you know, perceived threat or something that they that, that, that people want you to perceive as a threat. Yeah. You place it within the confines of some 
probably unbelievable, awful story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, be it you know somebody taking uh, you know too many drugs and trying to force their way through a keyhole or something to that extent. You know, <laughs> uh-huh. um, you know, or worse examples that we don't even want to get into on the show. But mm-hmm. uh, they're trying to use the you know the, the dark art of narrative to influence people's um, uh, thoughts and opinions. Well, as we discussed in the episode, yeah, constantly uh, narrative is used to short circuit people people's better judgment or rational evaluation of evidence. Yeah. I mean, if if you don't have the evidence on your side, just tell a good story, you might convince people anyway. I'm not advising people to do that. I'm saying that is how it often works. All right, let's get to the fun, though. Let's get to the fundamental attribution error. Well, this one combines the last two topics. So this is uh, an email about fundamental attribution error and our episode about narratives. So... It is from Amelia. Amelia says, yes, it's Amelia again. I think Amelia wrote us a lot of emails about Highlander, maybe, if I'm remembering (laughs) right. (laughs) So she says, sorry for all the emails these last few months. Uh, I vowed after I wrote about – yep, okay. I vowed after I wrote in about Highlander that I'd cut back. (laughs) It's okay. You can email. Um, I don't want my emails to get in the way of new writers or other great ideas. However, your recent podcasts on questioning of narrative and the phenomenon of fundamental attribution error coincide with my specific area of study. I'll try to keep it short. In your Against Narrative podcast, you brought up very good points about how the role of story making can promote faulty perceptions. For example, the notion of the isolated self and the bias for pattern interpretation. Narrative structures can be blamed for perpetuating concepts like these, concepts which often on closer inspection don't necessarily map onto our scientific knowledge. Having said that, I want to muddy the waters by arguing <laughs> that narrative, especially fiction, builds cognitive fortitude against the FAE fallacy. Subverting FAE, I argue, is one of the primary reasons we not only need narratives but continually construct them. FAE as an evolutionary development is inhospitable if contemplating its isolating qualities. As a human being or beings incapable of escaping FAE to promote a cohesive community would, by Darwin's estimation, fail to thrive. Narrative structures to that end provide an evolutionary benefit by encouraging the unification of human minds through the projection of self into alternative forms of perception and circumstance. This projection is possible with nonfiction, but the array of situational circumstances fiction permits is limited only by mankind's imagination. Following that line of thought, fiction arguably encapsulates as much of the situational human experience as can be imagined or projected. In this sense, the more a person reads from a fictional perspective, the stronger their capacity to cognitively navigate past the impulse of FAE intuition. It's interesting to contemplate the evolution of myth and narrative as a cognitive defense against FAE, though I haven't found any hard evidence of this. Uh, Anyway, just wanted to share this idea and happy podcasting. Best, Amelia. Uh, that is an interesting idea. I mean, I, I'm not sure how you'd prove something like that, but it, it is a sort of interpretive uh, framework that 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 piques my interest. Yeah, what if uh, fiction? Because we we should remember one thing uh, that does appear to be sort of true. At least there's some evidence of this in social psychology uh, that that manipulating perspectives can help people overcome fundamental attribution error. Like if you put put somebody in somebody else's shoes you know, almost literally, like you give them their perspective on a situation or a room. That's actually my new um, a box subscription service that I'm offering is that you <laughs> you get a copy of Moby Dick and they come with a pair of Ishmael's shoes. <laughs> so you get to read the the the, uh, the book while, while literally being in Ishmael's shoes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, you – but you do get to be in Ishmael's shoes a little bit because you're, you're hearing his first-person yeah. perspective in the story. Uh, that is sort of what I think fiction does. I mean, one – one good quality of fiction is that it puts you in somebody else's mind. It's an imagined mind, but I mean, it works pretty much the same way. You inhabit this other character, you see the world from their perspective, and then you see the way that their reactions to things are changed and charged by circumstance. Yeah, and you're privy to sort of a lot of times. I mean, it's, it's often such an interesting experience to read a first person account that encapsulates you inside of a. Uh, you know, very flawed character, or, or uh, you know, a, a character that is um, uh, that is perhaps uh, even uh, you know an antagonist. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there, I mean, another thing that I think is kind of interesting is that what the 
one of the things that the best fiction does is that it balances dispositional versus situational factors in the characters. Like you can have sort of one-dimensional characters that are overly dispositional. They're just like a pure quality and they always do that thing and there's no complexity to them. And then you, on the other hand, you've got characters that are might often be called like ciphers that don't really have any qualities. They're just sort of reacting to the world in a way that's entirely situational and they have no personality. Mm-hmm. And like good characters are in between these, right? Like they've got fundamental characteristics, but they're, they're complex, they're nuanced, they change according to circumstance. Yeah. You know, all this reminds me, it's been a while since I thought about this, but there was, a, this was like a blog, I think, that I was following years and years ago. And uh, the individual that that um, was maintaining the blog had kind of, I think they, they'd had a, a very like physical career prior. And then they were blogging, uh, you know, kind of uh, after that had come to a close. And then they had, they were also blogging about uh, their reading. Like they basically it sounded like maybe the individual had not read a lot previously and they were kind of like a late bloomer in a literary sense. Mm-hmm. And I remember when they talked about having read a first-person narrative for the first time. Like they had not read Whoa. a first-person uh, novel. Uh, and uh, I, at the time I was – you know, maybe a little, I was like, what, really? How'd you never, you know, read that before? But, but it, it, you know, it's making me think, like, what would that be like? I don't remember what it was like to read a first person, uh, you know, narrative for the first time. It was just kind of like always there. But it would be kind of magical, I guess. I mean, like, imagine picking it up and, and having never read that before. We're used to it, but it is a strange way of inducing kind of an altered state of consciousness. It's yeah. like you, you know, you get to... Uh, transport your mind in, in to a certain degree this happens with any good fiction is that there's sort of a, there's this identification process where you come to empathize with the fictional character their goals sort of become your goals their wishes become your wishes you you feel what they feel but even more so in the first person perspective than in even like a close third yeah it reminds me i'm i'm currently reading um uh, food of the gods by terence mckenna and uh-huh. uh, there's a bit where he's it's talking about just um, how uh, it's talking about language and about how we're it is just invisible to us, you know. Yeah. And he's talking about other things that are uh, in our lives that influence our behavior and that, that they are invisible to us. That we, that, you know, that we just don't we don't think about them, we don't notice them, but they are defining uh, the nature of our reality. Culture is mostly invisible unless yeah. you stop to think about it. Uh, yeah, language language constantly amazes me. It's one of those things that I wish every day I could remind myself to stop and appreciate how bizarre and magical language is. Yeah, but but it, it's so easy to uh, to just keep going and just breathe it in, breathe it out without yeah. thinking about the breath that you're taking. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and close it out right there. Uh, that's, that's your allotment of listener mail for the, the month or so, but we'll be back. And uh, as, as always, we do not we don't have time to respond to everybody that writes in. Mm-hmm. We, we don't have the space to, uh, to feature every bit of listener mail that comes in. But, but we, we really do appreciate it all. But we do read it all. Oh, uh, yeah. so, so don't, you know, never feel like you're, you're just throwing uh, your missive into the void here. Uh, and uh, like I say, it's part of, part of our way of, uh, you know, it's, it's a communication between us and, and, uh, and our listeners. It's a way for uh, uh, us to continue to grow, uh, for us to, uh, you know, correct anything that needs to be, be corrected. Uh, but, but generally, it's more, it's, it's more additive in nature. It's like we get to bring in your experiences, your specialized knowledge and experiences uh, to, uh, to, to, to better understand these topics that we've, we're discussing on the show. Yeah, we love all the stuff we hear from you all, so please keep it coming. Oh, hey, and uh, I have just one little insert I want to throw in here. Uh, doing this uh, post-recording. But I want to remind everybody that the World Science Festival is coming up. Ah, yes. Yeah, the World Science Festival. This is the annual celebration of science and the arts, which takes place May 22nd through June 2nd in New York City. So, uh, yeah, join in for this year's uh, festival to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the confirmation of Einstein's theory of relativity with over 60 events that take science out of the lab and into the streets, parks, museums, and uh, premier performing arts venues of New York City. Uh, The festival kicks off with Light Falls, an original work for the stage. 
on May 22nd, which will portray Einstein's general theory of relativity, followed by eye-opening discussions, vibrant debates, mind-expanding explorations, powerful theatrical works, works, insightful films, hands-on experiments, and major outdoor experiences, again, May 28th through June 2nd. Festival goers of all ages will join the world's leading thinkers for an unforgettable celebration of science that's sure to inspire and excite. Uh, I am going to be there in attendance myself. In the meantime, you can check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind at stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes. Links out to to places like our our discussion module group on Facebook. Uh, There's also that T-shirt store where you can... Uh, you can uh, check out our, our, our various squirrel uh, shirts that are, are currently for sale. Oh, and I also want to mention uh, at the top of the, this episode, I, I talked about the, the, the sacred squirrel in Hindu traditions. Mm-hmm. I read about that in a wonderful little book titled Sacred Animals of India by Nandatha Krishna. Uh, it's available. Um, you can get it online. It's available as an ebook or as a physical book. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun little, little read. I highly recommend it. Awesome. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us uh, to, uh, to let us know feedback on this episode, to suggest a topic for us to cover in the future, just to say hello, let us know you know how you found out about the show, all that kind of stuff, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.